Welcome back to the Resusex podcast. And this week we have Dr. Mohammed Hagamed, who's talking about peri-rest in your crashing patient. This was taken from Resusex Revolved back in 2022, and it's jammed packed with great pearls that you're going to use on your next resuscitation. So sit back, relax, and let's hear what Mohammed Hagmed has to say. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining me this session today. I appreciate it. My name is Mohammed Hagamed, and I am a faculty physician here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm also a clinician and educator for emergency medicine and EMS education here at the Center for Emergency Medicine. I want to thank you all for joining me this morning, and I hope you have your coffee and hopefully your open minds and open ears about this discussion that we're about to have. My goal today is to have an open discussion and maybe share with you some of the pearls that I've collected over the years with caring for crashing patients. I have no financial disclosure. And growing up, I love sports. I enjoyed playing every sport that I could get and I was uh, very active in high school and college. One of my biggest fascination was Michael Jordan. I think in my opinion, he is the only GOAT that still existed his day. One of, the quote that, one of the quotes that stuck in my mind throughout the years was this quote that I'm sharing with you all. I failed over and over again in my life. That is why I succeed. And what I'm trying to share today is not a failure persistently, but we all fail in one thing or the other. And some of us have specific cases that stuck through their minds and like always made them change something in their behavior or skill set. And I want to share with you a case that I had a few years ago of Miss Z. And I still to this day remember Miss Z. Miss Z is a recent immigrant to the United States. And she came in by EMS. She does not speak very good English. And she came in by EMS complaining of shortness of breath. Initially, family members called Nala One because she was having a lot of coughing, mostly productively, and was having trouble getting words out. When EMS arrived, uh, they noticed that she was hypoxic. Initially, she had uh, anywhere between the 70s, early, like, low 70s to mid 70s, and that improved nicely with oxygen to the mid 90s. She has a history of COPD, and she does use an inhaler. She moved recently uh, from South America to live with her uh, daughter, a loving and caring daughter, and has not been seen by any physician in the outpatient setting. Over the past couple of days prior to her current presentation, has been having this productive coughing and a fever and the chills. And EMS provided a DNF therapy, which seemed to improve her symptoms. By the time she came to the ED and I was able to see her, she was doing okay, I would say. Six liters per minute, that's what she was requiring, and had good oxygen saturation with that at 95, 98%. She was still speaking full sentences, and her examination is consistent with wheezing bilaterally and some fetal edema bilaterally. I had trouble getting the full history because of the language barrier, but I was able to use an interpreter, and I was able to get the gist so that she was having COPD exacerbation. I initiated the therapy, gave her some antibiotics, I gave her DNF therapy, she's feeling much better, some steroids, and I was planning to admit her to the hospital. Unfortunately, after she was admitted, and some of you might already live in this times that we're currently living in when people stay in the ED for many hours before they go to the floor. 
and she was waiting for a bed to be to become available. Uh, she has been experiencing now worsening hypoxia. And the nurse told me saying that she's now hypoxic in the mid 70s and she's now requiring high flow breathing mask at 15 liters per minute. When I got to see her, she was cyanotic. She was tachycardic in the one teens between 112 to 115. And also the nurse told me that she had one episode of hypotension. The map was at around 50. So when I, we started IV fluid and I went to see her again and I tried to place her on a BiPAP. However, she could not tolerate the BiPAP. And by that point, uh, she became unresponsive and like hard to arouse. So we ended up deciding to proceed with intubating her. Uh, I had one nurse, one respiratory therapist, and a resident there that was with me as well. And the resident was going to proceed with the intubation. Uh, and as we are preparing for the intubation, unfortunately, the patient ended up becoming unconscious and now sats in the low 60s. We were bagging her with using a positive pressure ventilation, resulting in her becoming more hypotensive. So at some point, the nurse told me that she was not having any pulse. We ended up doing CPR, and from there, just things start to become a blur to me. It felt like things were like moving very fast, and now we have a peri-arrest patient going into cardiac arrest during intubation before securing an airway. And this is what I want to share with you today, is that when you look at intubation in an acute care setting, either in the ED or in the ICU, as you all know, this is a high-risk procedure. And as with high-risk procedures, there is always room for mistakes or errors. My question was at the time, what are some of the things that I could have done that could have possibly prevented um, this outcome in this patient? And I tried to investigate and look in the literature and specifically looking at some of the numbers and the data that looks at uh, incidents of area arrest or perintubation, cardiac arrest, and also looking at some of the associated factor. So this study here is a, a secondary analysis of the prospectively collected near data. So this is a national emergency area registry. Some of you might be familiar with this registry. And the main objective was to look at the incidence of perintubation, cardiac arrest in this set of analyses, in this set of patients, and also look at some of the, fa the factors. As you can see here, the perintubation cardiac arrest rate is very high, it's more than 30%. And what got my attention is when you look at the factors that can result in high likelihood of having a perintubation cardiac arrest, most of the things that you see, number one factor is actually pre-intubation hypoxemia, which Mrs. Z had, and also high pre-intubation shock index. As you recall, shock index is defined by the heart rate divided by the salt bar pressure. And depending on what study you look at, uh, any shock index that is higher than 0.8 or 0.9, that actually a marker for badness. Another multinational or international study that looked at the same things that the near data also looked at when it comes to incidents and what are the types of major adverse effects during per intubation cardiac arrest. So this study involved 197 centers in 29 different countries and also looking at the same incidence rate anywhere between 1% to 3%. So the incidence of cardiac arrest during the perintubation period is around 3%. And if out of the 2,900 patients that this study included, 
you can see it's close to half. So that's half of the patients at least experience one major adverse effect. And the majority of them actually experience cardiovascular instability or cardiovascular collapse, which also Ms. C had. And the majority of them also, or some or a subset of them had uh, hypoxemia. And this is based on the uh, peripheral pulse loss. So if you look at peri-intubation cardiac arrest, the number is anywhere between one to 3%, but in some studies can go up as high as 5%. And again, the things that we have to be mindful about is if you have a patient who is hypoxemic or hypotensive and has a very high shock index, then the likelihood of a cardiac arrest during the peri-intubation period is very high. Why does it happen? Now, if you look at these patients, most of them have an underlying ideology or cause that either caused them to be hypotensive and they're already like squeezing this last catecholaminergic resources that they already have. And now you're taking away that endogenous catecholamines by doing RSI, right? You're also providing positive pressure ventilation, which as we all know, increases the intrathoracic pressure, decreasing the preload, exacerbating the hypotension. And most of these patients, like Missy, also had other multi-organ injuries. She had compromised lungs, and then we don't know much about her history because of the language barrier. So things to be mindful about and things to be prepared about is the things that we have in, in our armamentarium. So what about fluid? Do you all give fluid to every patient before you intubate? I tend to give fluid, specifically LR or balanced solution, to anybody who's hypotensive. But what about just like giving fluid to everyone before you intubate? Does that result in better outcome? Does that result in less cardiovascular collapse? Actually, according to the prepared to trial here that I'm uh, mentioning, which is a multi-center, unblinded, pragmatic RCT from 11 ICUs across the U.S., they compared giving a bolus of 500 cc of acetolic solution versus no bolus during intubation. And the ultimate result showed there is no difference in incidence of cardiovascular collapse. I don't do this. Actually, what I do in my practice currently is to proceed with initiating a peripheral presser. And my vasopressor of choice is norepinephrine. Now, when it comes to push-dose presser versus initiating infusion, I tend to use an infusion during my resuscitation while I'm intubating, just because of the minimizing errors in dosing. I am forced, actually, I'm very lucky to have a pharmacist, an AD pharmacist in our facilities, and we use them frequently in any high-risk patient or crashing patients. So they help us a lot with dosing, and they help us a lot with starting these trips while we're there in eating. Now, when it comes to RSI, we have to use our RSI meds wisely. Now, I am biased, and I tend to use Etomidate in almost all of my patients, including patients with sepsis. I know this is a heated debate, and I know that most of you might say, oh, no, I like ketamine better. No, I like Etomidate better. But let's just take a look at some of the recent data published over the past couple of months, actually. And this is this specifically looked at etomidate versus ketamine for emergency ET intubation, which is a randomized single center in Dallas, Texas. This was a prospective, open-label, randomized trial. And their question was, what is the short-term survival in ICU patients who are intubated with either etomidate versus ketamine? Now, be mindful, this study was not done in an ED setting. 
It was done on the floor and mostly by anesthesiology-led airway teams. So most of these patients, or I guess half of these patients, actually received the diagnosis of sepsis. So let's look at, re- at the results here. When it comes to ketamine versus etomidate, they looked at survival at day seven. And actually, at day seven, ketamine is associated with better survival when, when compared to etomidate. But that actually disappeared. So that uh, preference or that um, uh, survival benefit disappeared at day 28. And when you d- break down the data and look at the exploratory analysis, you will see that peri-intubation hypotension requiring vasopressor was more commonly associated with ketamine group than etomidate group. And also post-induction CPR and cardiovascular instability are more common also in the ketamine group. Again, this is a very heated debate. I tend to prefer automated in my practice. And if you look at uh, most of the recent studies that are not very robust and not very strong, I would say they prefer automated, I think, in my opinion. Uh, that's what I support currently. And this is for that reason. Uh, ketamine, ketamine can uh, cause myocardial um, depression. So it has this kind of property uh, of, of worsening cardiovascular collapse if you have a really unstable patient or crashing patient in front of you uh, that you are trying to intubate. So going back to Ms. Z, um, we were able to place the endotracheal endotrical tube within about five minutes when she arrested. <clears throat> and soon after that, we managed to get ROSC and uh, we managed to stabilize her. Uh, when she went to the ICU, um, unfortunately, she was not doing very well. She ended up having multi-organ injury, acute kidney injury, requiring renal replacement therapy. At day 10, uh, fortunately, the family decided to just to make the patient comfortable, and they wanted Joel to decrease her suffering, and she ended up passing on day 10 of her ICU admission. Again, I knew this patient very well, and I knew her family very well, so some of the things that I could improve on in my own practice is the things that I mentioned to you that I would like to share with you again. And I don't want you to fall in this trap of under-resuscitating your sick patients before intubating. So please avoid these pitfalls, hypoxemia, hypotensions. Always be wary of patients with high shock index and always resuscitate before you intubate. And with that, I'm all happy to answer any questions. The question was whether I use the 0.3 mg per kg of etomidate. So yeah, that will be usually my go-to dosing. If you look at the near data and as well as the latest study that I showed you, the dosing was anywhere between 0.2 to 0.3. I tend to go higher on the induction dosing, so 0.3 mg per kg. That actually brings me to a, a side topic about paralysis, right? When you use your paralytic there is an association between using a higher dose of paralytics. My preferred go-to is actually rocuronium, and I go as high as 1.5, sometimes 2 mg per kg, not just the 1 mg per kg. Some people go like 1 or 1.1. I tend to go higher in the paralytic dosing, which is associated with uh, higher success, higher first-pass success in these sick patients. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Andy Ariza, I'm one of the PCCM faculty down here in South Carolina. Nice to meet you. And thanks so much for that 
sharing that case, I think you highlight a very important concept of uh, peri-intubation resuscitation. And obviously the patients that we have, me in the ICU, you in the ER, they're all very high-risk intubations. Totally agree. I don't think there's a patient that I intubate without hanging levofed before getting started. And the concept you were getting into with the paralytics is also interesting that I talk a lot about with the fellows because I also hang propofol and I also give fentanyl if I give etomidate, not if I give ketamine. Because the question is, if you give the rock your own name, which is the, at least my, myself and my colleagues, that's usually the go-to. But then they're paralyzed for an hour and a half. And in the ER or in the ICU, sometimes this gets forgotten about. Etomidate lasts 10 minutes and somewhere in that realm. So I always get the propofol running before I even intubate. Part of the reason why I also have the levofed. And I also get the fentanyl and I make it a point to say, put these up at pretty high doses if the hemodynamics can tolerate until we get some train of four back. Do you have any comment on that? Do you also find that's a problem that these patients are lost and may be paralyzing without sedation? No, this is actually a very passionate topic of mine. I tend automatically, whenever I shout that I'm going to be intubating a patient, I always tell let's get ready with the with sedation. So I would say, I'm going to be intubating. These are my medications, these are my doses, but I'm also, please get the sedation ready. So now it'll be like propofol, fentanyl, depending on the underlying ideology or cause. And as you might have alluded to also, Andy, this is a very important concept, a very important point to, to emphasize is that if you intubate somebody and you paralyze them, there is always this kind of like, false sense of safety about their sedation, right? Because they're not moving, they're not doing anything. So I tend to agree with you completely. Like I tend to start my sedation as I already am intubating, right? So the patient is paralyzed, intubated, start sedation right there and then. And some people actually even give it, they just let it run with fentanyl, propofol as you intubate, assuming that the patient is not like really hypotensive or requiring significant resuscitation. Again, you always look at the patient in front of you, and I'll give you another situation that I had recently with a patient with status asthmaticus, and I decided to proceed with ketamine in that case, given the theoretical bronchodilatory effect of ketamine, and also I didn't want to suppress the respiratory drives. So actually in that patient with status asthmaticus, I used a delayed sequence approach with ketamine while maximizing my therapy for them with albuterol doing abs, maybe like BiPAP, pre-oxygenation. And if I can see them already getting tired and getting exhausted, then I go ahead with the delayed sequence intubation using ketamine at usually two mg per gig and I try to intubate them that way without completely paralyzing them. I hope that makes sense. But I agree with you that ketamine has this added benefit of bronchodilatation that can help me in certain disease processes such as asthmatics and other people with reactive airway diseases. I have not seen that being done. I guess the question was, should you always give fentanyl with etomidate to prevent myoclonus? So I use rocuronium for my paralytic agents. I do not see myoclonus. I I would say I've never seen this practice with giving fentanyl with rocuronium. I do, however, initiate fentanyl drip as soon as I intubate for sedation or propofol. Yeah, here, so just to give an idea, like in our EMS system in, in Pennsylvania and Western Pennsylvania, specifically in Western Pennsylvania, they sometimes, some of them, if they need to intubate somebody, they use like boluses of uh, fentanyl or um, to intubate. They don't have the RSI meds that we have in the hospital. So usually they either place a, a supraglottic airway 
And if it's a difficult intubation, they just go with that first. They try to intubate, but they normally pre-medicate with fentanyl and Versed. Thank you again for all your questions. I really enjoyed this discussion. Please email me with any comments or questions, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the rest of the show. Thank you all.